Welcome to Speak Out World, the podcast dedicated to arts, activism, and more. I'm your host, Jewel L. And I'm your host, Dino L. And we want to start off by giving a shout out to those who have lost loved ones through the coronavirus, those who are recovering from the illness. We just want you to know that we're praying for you. We want you to know that we love you. And we're always going to be praying and sending up prayer requests for you. So, Jewel, we have a great show today. We're excited. We have an educator who's going to come back and talk about one of the musical masterpieces that he's made regarding the Holocaust. Yes, so don't go away. We'll be right back with more Speak Out World. Coming up next on Speak Out World, arts, activism, and more. Hours, days, weeks, months, six months. That's a lot of time for just 10 minutes of art. That's insane. I mean, who does that? We We do. We do. We do. We do. Here at Lab, our Jewish Student Association hosts the Holocaust Assembly every other year. I asked the JSA if they'd be open to our electronic music ensemble performing. I thought we could make a different contribution. Something unique using technology, since that's what the group is all about. They said they thought that'd be great. I started brainstorming ideas. At the time, I really just thought I'd compose something like I'd done so many times before. That was before I met Ali Mobs. It's a process known as sound design. Ali was doing a workshop on it where we went out into the city and recorded any sounds we wanted. Traffic, crunching a plastic bottle, stepping on leaves, tapping a metal gate, literally anything. Before the workshop with Ali, I was already thinking about the piece I was writing. But then I thought, what if every instrument sound you heard came from field recordings captured from actual artifacts of the Holocaust? storytelling through music and there's a quote yeah there's this quote that says the purpose of a storyteller is not to tell you how to think but to give you questions to think upon so Mm. All right. Yes. So on today, we're going to talk about that, the art of storytelling through music with our very special guest, Francisco Dean. Francisco is a native of San Antonio, Texas, and teaches in Chicago, where he has served on the music faculty of the University of Chicago Lab School since 2010. At the Lab School, Francisco is the founder of the school's first ever electric electronic music ensemble, creating a special musical piece telling the stories of the Holocaust using actual artifacts to create a digital symphony. Welcome, Francisco. Francisco. Welcome, welcome. Good to see you. Good to be seen. Yes. 
Well, uh, Dino, I'm going to let you go ahead and leave with this first question for Francisco. All right, I have a double whammy for you, Francisco. <laughs> Tell me about how you acquired your love for music. And as an educator in Chicago, at the lab school, the University of Chicago, a lot of times Chicago schools get a bad rap. But you're at a school that is one of the best in Chicago at the lab school. And tell us how your, your teaching as an educator has helped you in your musical abilities. So uh, I got started in music uh, from a, uh, a person that I'll never be able to credit. I, I, the unknown trumpeter, I guess I'll call him. Uh, way, way back as a, uh, a little boy, I remember uh, just hearing the sounds of someone uh, probably being kicked outside because he was too loud in the house. So I just heard trumpet every day. Um, and I really just got uh, drawn to the sound. I felt connected to it. Um, didn't know what it was, but knew I wanted to be um, surrounded by other musicians. And so in middle school, uh, I joined the band right away, and uh, it's been um, a thrill ride ever since. I've just uh, really enjoyed uh, learning about music, playing music, making music with others. Um, that uh, roundabout way eventually led me to Chicago. Uh, the lab school is a very unique place in that as an independent school, um, although we are based in the uh, South Chicago neighborhood of Hyde Park, uh, our student body and, and faculty are, are literally drawn from all over Chicagoland and even uh, Northwest Indiana. Um, so I, I really appreciate um, the out-of-the-box thinking that the school promotes. Um, it certainly allowed me the chance to try new things and, and thrive with um, you know, creative ideas. Um, and I've been supported at every step of the way with that. Well, Francisco, tell us about um, the instruments that you actually play, because I see a number of them in the background, you know, right now. So what are some of the instruments, uh, instruments that you play? Um, I started off playing the French horn in middle school and eventually at some point in high school also uh, added trumpet because they're very similar. Um, so I would consider myself a brass player. Um, I do dabble a little bit in other instruments. Um, my, my piano skills are more what I would call combat piano in the sense that I'm not an actual classical pianist or a performing uh, pianist in any sense, but um, I can bang out chords if I need to. Uh, it's, it's really more of a tool that I use uh, for composing. So yeah, I guess trumpet is, is my, my main instrument. Yeah, well, I I play the piano just this much uh, <laughs> and so too enough to read the notes, but yes, I definitely can't do what you do. Go ahead, Dino. <laughs> so, Francisco, can you explain to our listeners what digital music production and sound design encompass? Absolutely. Um, that's a great question. Um, digital music is really just any method where you're creating music using technology. And so... Um, I think most people would default to exclusively using electronic sounds like you would hear from a synthesizer, but you can also include acoustic sounds such as the human voice or acoustic instruments that are brought into an electronic environment and shaped or morphed or manipulated in any kind of way. Um, I think that the technology and the tools allow you at some times to do things that otherwise wouldn't be possible with uh, conventional 
um, music means. Like you would see a, an orchestral string quartet performing. That's very um, focused on the actual instrument itself and the history of its build. Whereas with technology and electronics, it's always evolving. And so there are um, infinite things you can do to really shape and morph whatever musical product you're trying to create. I really got into that, um, I, I would say, the last um, maybe seven or eight years. I've been at the lab school for 10 years, and I've taught uh, this digital music class from the beginning. But in a lot of ways, it was still kind of foreign to me because I hadn't used that side of music technology in that way before. So uh, going along the droid with the kids and figuring out their world and their generation, their society, what they connect to musically, it's really broadened my horizons. I think as a jazz musician, the thing that was the biggest hurdle for me was um, the singular concept that you typically think of when you hear of an electronic musician. One person in front of a computer creating their entire track all by themselves. Gotcha. Jazz, as you know, is very interactive and we feed off of each other's energy in the moment. And so um, that was, I think, one of the things I really wanted to explore um, because I felt like it was possible. I didn't think that the fact that we were using different sounds had anything to do with the fact that we as human beings could still interact with each other. Okay. Now, Frisco, Francisco, you mentioned jazz. So I'm just curious to know who are some of your favorite jazz artists that, you know, you like to listen to? Um, I, if I had to pick one, I, I think I'd have to say John Coltrane. All right. um, but but certainly Miles and um, you know anybody in the uh, old school bebop and hard bop era of the fifties and sixties. Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, anything on the old classic blue note uh, record labels. Um, but you know contemporary stuff has really evolved as well. I have. Um, I've discovered a lot of musicians that coincidentally seem to have all come from New Orleans. It wasn't really meant to be that way, but. Um, you know, that city being so culturally relevant to the birth of this music. But, you know, in today's day and age, what those musicians are doing, just really innovative and um, exploratory. So I'm thinking of Nicholas Payton. I'm thinking of uh, Christian Scott, Terrence Blanchard, obviously the Marsalis family. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a pretty wide gamut. But if you had to filter where it began from me, I'd say the old school hard bop of Coltrane. Okay, well, you know, we'll have to talk um, after this interview is over. You know, uh, I got a, I got a, a piece of poetry that just dedicated to all the <laughs> jazz uh, uh, historians and the singers and the, the fathers of the jazz. So, yeah, so we'll talk. We'll talk yes, afterwards about that. <laughs> I don't want to distract. I don't want to distract. <laughs> but um, how did you? How did you come together with this particular project at the lab school, um, using this um, to tell the story about the Holocaust and using artifacts to produce this like digital symphony sure. that you just created. So um, th there's two main components to that. Uh, the first was just the, the, the piece itself in terms of the concept. Um, before we get into the actual artifacts piece of it, which got added later, we have at our school, I'm very fortunate that we have um, several um, 
types of assemblies that are geared towards really fostering an appreciation for uh, culture and heritage. And one of them is every other year we do a Holocaust Remembrance Assembly that's hosted by the Jewish Student Association. And uh, coming to lab when I did in, in 2010, um, I'd never seen an assembly like that before. So um, it definitely uh, caught my attention. Um, I, I was really blown away by the way it was organized. You had guest speakers, you had student presentations, you had musical um, performances by um, students in the department. And I just knew I wanted to be a part of that in some kind of way. Um, so um, I approached the JSA um, at the beginning of that particular school year to say, you know, I direct this electronic music ensemble, and would they be interested in us doing a performance of something? Um, music for that group is is kind of unique. There's not really a music store for that kind of thing. So anything you play, you have to create from scratch. And I knew that I wanted to compose something, but wasn't sure at that time what it would be or how to do it. Um, they were really receptive. They 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 were you know thought it would be a great addition, something unique and different, and exploratory. So. At that point, it was just more about brainstorming some of the um, concepts of the piece and um, where I wanted to draw musical ideas and develop those musical concepts. The artifacts piece of it came a little later. Uh, it was later in that year in November that I went to a music conference um, where it was a summit of all things music technology. And so it was this melting pot of um, creators from all over the world, um, sessions, concerts, clinics. One of them that I went to was given by uh, a gentleman by the name of Ali Mods, and it was entitled Beat Picnic. And so Beat Picnic was what I thought at the time. We would be going out into the city um, with our cell phones or our field recorders and just recording various sounds, um, traffic, you know, walking on leaves, um, um, tapping on a door, and then taking those sounds and then creating some type of an exotic drum kit that just kind of had some cool things to it. Well, I couldn't have been more wrong with what that workshop was. What Ali was teaching us was uh, to take those original sounds and extracting and changing and morphing those frequencies into entirely different instruments. The best way I can describe it is um, if you think about a, a, a person sitting at um, a table of clay, and that clay is, is you know, the same material. The material doesn't change, but what you shape it into is completely up to you. It could be a cup, it could be a bowl, it could be a statue, it could be wow. um, whatever you want it to be. But each mm -hmm. instance of that clay is not at all like what the other image was. And so taking the sound frequencies of leaves being crushed by walking on them and completely shaping and morphing them so that now that is a bass instrument or it is a, uh, a keyboard type harmonic instrument that doesn't sound anything at all like, like leaves. That just blew me away. I, I didn't know that that was possible. Um, to see Ali do it on the spot was just mesmerizing. Um, and I didn't know how I would do it or where I would start, but I knew that I just wanted to really dive into that world. So that's where I thought to myself, I'm working on this piece. I'm trying to make it meaningful. Mm -hmm. There's a storyline behind it and there's, you know, um, sources of inspiration, but 
um, we have a Holocaust museum up in Skokie, north of Chicago, not that far away. And I reached out to them with this thought, thinking full well that they'll that they'll say no because I understand quite clearly the reverence of the Holocaust. Um, my idea was if they would permit me to collect audio samples of actual Holocaust artifacts okay. um, and take those frequencies and shape and remorph them into all of the instrument sounds that we would use in our palette to compose this piece. Um, Back in high school, I I traveled to to Poland. I was part okay. of a youth orchestra, so you know we we visited Auschwitz, and I understand the reverence of all of that. So I I knew what this entailed. Um, I thought they'd say no, and they said yes. Um, they were really enthusiastic about it. That really helped me to um, just feel like I was really inspired by it. And so here we are today. Francisco, how did the students, uh, how did they react when you told them your idea about the Holocaust and how you wanted to incorporate these sounds? And what did it actually feel like while you were in the presence of this, uh, of this environment where millions of people had been killed? Mm -hmm. Speak on that. Sure. Um, the visit to the um, the museum um, at the time I thought would be, you know, whatever they happened to have on the museum floor. But in truth, they uh, gave me so much more than that. They took me into their archives in the back where thousands and thousands of pieces um, are cataloged and arranged and housed. And so um, Emily Mooney, uh, the curator who uh, worked with me, um, being in that space, um, you know, when you first walk in before you even see anything, there's already a tone that's set. Um, you can literally smell um, the artifacts from the Holocaust, you know, the uh, everything is so uh, richly preserved. Um, fabrics, you can, wow. you know, you you can smell um, the fabric, the the, the wood of, um, you know, various trinkets, um, the the leather from the luggage, um, you know. So there's clearly a tone before you even see or touch anything that you can smell, and I think that that really fostered this reverence of understanding each piece that was pulled out. Um, there literally is a story for every piece. And so uh, Emily was um, so unbelievably knowledgeable to give me the background of the pieces that we looked at. And that really helped decide which pieces I wanted to pull out to record samples from. Um, the kids, the kids are amazing. Uh, at the lab school, it's, it's an environment with the, the kids in our ensemble where they're really open to anything. They, they, they've always got an open mind, a go-getter attitude. So, you know, when I pitched this idea to them and what we might do with it, um, there was so much enthusiasm and, and curiosity to explore 
what this was going to end up being. And it was a work in progress. It wasn't like I composed the entire piece and then we began our first rehearsals. Okay. Um, it was in three, um, three different sections, three movements. And so um, as we were working on the first movement, I was still writing the second and the third. So oh, wow. in real time, as we're preparing this piece, new material is being added. And at times, a very collaborative process on what we might do to interpret that. Um, they were just so um, resilient in that whole process because they understood upfront what this meant. It wasn't, you know, just some piece of music with some notes on it. They, they knew what this was supposed to represent. They understood um, the, um, the genesis of where these sounds literally came from. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was just so uh, revered throughout the entire process. Well, in, in, in this piece that, um, that you created, you also included poetry. Um, also is part of it. And, and if I'm not mistaken, many of the poems that were written were written um, by young children who were part of the Holocaust, young teenagers, let me just say that. Yes. And so tell us a little bit about the poetry that's included in the pieces and how you were able to um, to connect those pieces in terms of bringing out uh, the, the the digital sound sure. uh, for this project? Um, I think from the very beginning, one of the things that was important as I was kind of compiling all of this was that I wanted the piece to be driven um, by, by the Jewish people, by mm-hmm. um, people who had lived during the Holocaust. Um, so I really drew heavily on influences from that regard. And so um, speaking to your point, one of the things um, that we discovered in history um, a while back, um, there are various camps throughout the Holocaust, as everyone knows, but the Theresien camp in, uh, in Czechoslovakia had a higher number of, of children. Um, when that camp was liberated after the war was over, they found um, just countless pieces of, of literature and art um, created by these children. You, you had poems, you had short stories, you had drawings, you had all kinds of things um, wow. that they did in secret. This wasn't something that they did openly. They did this in right. secret as a way to just kind of, you know, bide their time, I imagine, try to hold on to something in terms of sanity. Um, and a lot of these have been curated and, and published. Uh, a very famous book, I Never Saw Another Butterfly, is an excellent compilation of um, many of these poems. So that provided a resource for me to at least begin this research and try to find um, literature that I could kind of draw off of. The pieces in three different movements depicting three different times during the Holocaust. The first is before the Holocaust. So we're talking about a peaceful time, a time where we have no idea this thing is about to happen, um, the sentiment of what life may have been like for um, a child during that time. And so um, that poem um, was written anonymously um, called Birdsong. And um, 
it was true to the theme I was trying to create, very, very pleasant and very hopeful. Um, the second movement is depicting the Holocaust itself. And the poem that I chose uh, for that part was called Fear, um, written by Eva Pickova. She was, um, we, we confirmed that she was the author of this poem and she, I believe was 14 when she wrote um, that particular poem. When you read that poem, it, it speaks volumes of an adult with decades of life experiences and to, to fathom that that was written by a 14 year old is just unbelievable. Um, the third poem, um, I Am a Jew, and this one was uh, Front Abbas. Front Abbas uh, actually had quite a number of, uh, of pieces that they um, were able to uh, collect and restore when they liberated the camp. Um, he was a little bit older. Um, his, his poem, I Am a Jew, is more about the resilience of the Jewish people, the enduring of, of hardships and still coming out triumphant on the other side. So I wanted to end the piece reflecting what I feel is true today, that the Jewish people have endured um, something as horrific as the Holocaust and come through on the other side. Mm -hmm. Francis, Amazing. And, and I just want to, the one um, the, with fear, it was very interesting how you used the, the word fear and actually tied it in to, if I'm not mistaken, four different notes in order to create that. Yeah. So how, how, like just a thought, I mean, just to even come up with that, like how did you do that? And how did you know which note to compare for like R or, you know, sure. can you just explain that? Yeah, um, that's something known as a musical cryptogram. And um, that just means that we take a word, and we use those letters and identify them with musical pitches. The most famous one um, is um, Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, famous uh, Baroque composer. So B-A-C-H is how we spell his name. And in the German musical notation, B represents the note B flat, then there's A, then there's C. In Western civilization, there's no note for H, but in the old German system, H represented B natural. So those four pitches, B flat, A, C, and B natural, um, dozens of composers have found inspiration from those four notes and just written pieces all kinds of ways. I wanted to see if the word fear would lend itself to something musical that I could use, and so I kind of explored what that would be. Uh, the first three notes were obvious, F, E, and A. But for the word R, since there's no R in the musical alphabet, right. I went to um, vocal solfege. So if we think about do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, uh, re is a note that we use in solfege. So in the key of C, re would be the D. So my musical cryptogram became the four notes F, E, A, and D. And I just explored them and saw, okay, if I play these notes in order, what does that sound like? What does it yield in terms of, you know, melodic material? Um, are there chords I could extract from that? And I was really pleasantly surprised all the different directions I could go with that. So in the second movement that, you know, the, the fear movement that depicts the Holocaust, um, every note that you hear is based off of that um, musical cryptogram. Amazing. Amazing. Francisco, you have like this 
new musical genius. Like that's how I just, <laughs> that's how I just see it. Like, oh my goodness. Uh, this Francisco. is amazing. Do you know? Yeah, Francisco, during the making of Feeling Deep Mbasi, tell me some of the artifacts that you actually uh, came across and actually uh, taped the sounds of. And what was the feeling of that when you listened to something like uh, a zipper zip up on a coat that you know was worn by a particular person who had died in the Holocaust? Sure. Um, so um, talking about stories, um, there were several artifacts that were donated by um, the Glass family. The Glass family um, had uh, Jewish heritage in Chicago. And Jerry Glass um, was actually a soldier in the U.S. Army. Um, he served under Patton. He was part of the uh, Normandy invasion of Omaha Beach um, and was part of the liberation of the Mauthausen concentration camp. So there were several pieces that were owned by Jerry, um, namely his soldier boots, um, his uniform pants, um, one of his army jackets. And so um, speaking about those particular articles, um, for example, the the sound of just pulling the zipper back and forth, there's not much to that in terms of, of tone. You definitely can't play a melody or, or, you know, a chord off of a zipper sound. Um, but when you, again, you take those frequencies and you kind of just, you know, reshape them into something that becomes tonal, um, the zipper became, um, in the third movement of the piece, um, one of the primary melodic instruments. Um, his uniform pants, uh, I thought that was very um, compelling in that when you just rub, you know, fabric together, like if I do this, you don't really hear anything, but if you have a microphone right up against it and that that sound of the fabric rubbing again, it's not yeah. total. You can't really do anything with that in terms of a, of a musical or a harmonic context. But again, reshaping those frequencies and extracting something, that became um, another instrument sound that I was able to use. Um, his soldier boots were very compelling in that... Um, I had this idea for the third movement. Um, part of what I wanted to depict was the actual allied forces coming to liberate um, the camps. And so I wanted the sound of uh, literally an army marching, right? Well, I only have, you know, one pair of boots. I mean, that's not gonna be much of an army. Um, so part of that process was taking samples, tapping that boot, on a wide variety of surfaces. We used concrete, we used oak, we used birch, we used cedar, we used um, cardboard. And taking those in various different ways, you know, here's the heel, here's the tip, here's the whole mm -hmm. boot, here's a, a flaming kind of thing. Um, it yielded dozens and dozens and dozens of samples. And when you layered all that together, um, we created an army. Um, it's wow. literally an army wow. marching towards um, these camps that uh, you know liberates um, the, the, the 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 prisoners. So yeah, um, I think it was more than just here's a sound and I can do something with it and then kind of have something you know meaningful to work with in a compositional context. Um, it was important for me to um, resurrect Jerry. 
I, I, I wanted mm -hmm. Jerry to be an, an integral part of, of this piece. And it just so happened with the particular artifacts that his family had given to the museum, um, that that really just fell into place. And, and it's just amazing that through these artifacts, once again, through art, you are telling the story. You are making it real. You are personalizing it, you know? And that's what's so amazing about um, art form of any kind, whether it's poetry or music, that you're still telling the story. And so I wanted to... Um, also touch on what was the reaction um when you actually performed uh for for the school the the students the people the participants that attended and they also knew that you had these artifacts mm -hmm. that were incorporated into the sound of this symphony this yeah. is what i call it the symphony that was um that was something that was really present on my mind at the very beginning and throughout the entire process, because uh, so many people were involved in the in the collaboration here. Um, I, you know, there's there's parts of the piece where some of the text is Yiddish, and so not knowing Yiddish myself, you know, reaching out to people who spoke, read, understood the language, could put things in context to translate. Um, there's an actual partisan tune, um, Zognit Kainmal, um, which is a a hero's, you know tune to you know withstand and and fight back um that's very well known in the um holocaust era um so i actually approached a uh, a university yiddish uh, speaking class and you know we recorded them um singing multiple takes of this song um i think to answer your question you know at every collaboration it was important for me to have people that were closely connected with Jewish culture in general, because mm -hmm. they had the deepest appreciation of what this was going to be about or where it was coming from. And, um, you know, their blessing was really important to me. I didn't ever outwardly say that, but um, I think that's just where I went at each step of the way. And so with every collaboration, when I got a sense that they were really bought in and invested, that kind of helped fuel me forward. I think by the time that we got to the full performance, there was such a background that was kind of explained about the piece. I think if you just heard the piece by itself without knowing any of this, it may not have the same effect because they just sound like instrument sounds and there's a melody and, and you know, what have you. But to know where they came from and how all this was kind of a someone put together. Um, and these were students, right? So there were students and faculty were involved. So, you know, their peers were in the know. By the time we had the actual performance, um, I think people had an idea of how important it was going to be. And it was really well received, I'm, I'm thankful uh, to say. Uh, I really appreciated the reception. Um, we performed this um, about a year and a half ago. So I'm, I'm really encouraged by the fact that, you know, a year and a half later, um, people are still talking about this. They're, they're you know, asking me questions um, about the piece. They're wanting to know more about, you know, sound design. It's taken an inspiration with my classes. Um, you know, we've actually added a unit in our digital music production class where kids are exploring taking their own recorded sounds and just practicing morphing and, and, and shaping. Um, we had a student who uh, performed a piece at that same concert um, 
this piece was called Knives and Fire. Um, and the title didn't really give it away and the piece really didn't give it away, but his explanation did. Um, growing up as a kid, his parents laid down a very firm understanding that you do not go into the kitchen. There are, are sharp objects. There are things that can you know, burn you if you touch the stove. Um, so they kind of instilled this fear about going into the kitchen. So his piece um, was built just off of sounds from his kitchen, the running of the, 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 the stove, um, the, yeah. the cleaning together of spoons and forks and, and knives. And so I've, mm. I've appreciated the ripple effect that this project has had with the kids in their own learning. Join us again next week as we continue our conversation on the art of storytelling through music with musician and educator Francisco Dean. <laughs>